Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Lachlan, Hi, Neil, Yo, and Justin. So this week we're moving on from lizards and looking at the wonderful world of frogs and finding out all the weird and wonderful places where you can find a frog, the ways you can trick a frog's brain using interesting signal processing, and the ways that frogs can help us learn more about our lives and our, and our medical practices and we can evolve with them. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So this week's City of Science, unremarkably, is the city of New York. And why, you might think, this will be our city of science. It's not for the many fantastic universities, the fantastic buildings, or the fantastic culture in New York. No, 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 no. The reason why we're focusing on New York as our city of science for this week is because a new species of frog has been discovered there. Yes, in the big apple, the city that never sleeps, one of the busiest, bustling metropolises in the world, a new species of wild frog has been discovered somehow amongst all of this. And you'll never guess where. A rainforest. Not quite, no. In the wetlands? No, no, not in the swamps, not in the Hudson River. A bathroom? (laughs) And not in the sewers, like you would have think either. No, this frog has been discovered in Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, one of the toughest neighbourhoods in the world, with a massive stadium. These frogs have been found living there. So researchers from the University of California, and why they're frog hunting in the middle of New York, I have no idea, but they've, they've made a trip up there, along with researchers from Louisiana State University and Rutgers University, which is a bit closer to home to New York, have been hunting through New York, and they did some genetic testing on this frog they discovered there, and they found that, yes... In the concrete jungle of, of New York, a new frog was discovered there that was living inside uh, inside the stadium, the stadium's grounds, and is actually a completely new species of frog that does bears no similarities or difference enough to be a new species, considered a new species. And it wasn't even found in a nice part of the stadium. It was found in one of the grittiest corners in the Yankee Stadium. Like... <laughs> Pretty hardcore for a frog. Yeah, have some amazing evolutionary properties. I mean, the amount of pollution that a frog in New York City would have to put up with to survive would be incredible. Look, I think we're all very disappointed here that it's not, in fact, a turtle, because when considering it, turtles, New York City, new species, clearly the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but so we don't have those, but we do have a new species of frog. Now, I love the story about how this frog was found. So there were some researchers there. Um, Kathy Newman from the Louisiana State University was up studying leopard frogs around New York, and and she kept finding all these weird frogs that didn't make any sense to anything she knows when trying to find these leopard frogs. And it ended up being a completely new species that had stumbled into her experiments with these leopard frogs by accident. So they weren't even trying to find it. They just stumbled upon it in the middle of the concrete jungle. So that's why, surprisingly enough, New York is our city of science for this week's special on frogs. So moving on from the world of lovely lizards to the world of frogs and their frog song, which you may of course know is the song of love if you are a frog and it is their mating call. But there's a lot of interesting science that actually goes into understanding, perceiving and processing these mating calls. So every time you hear a frog making a terrible racket after a rainstorm, it's actually trying to get a message across. And some universities at the University of Texas and Salisbury University in Austin have actually been doing some really interesting research into the way the frog brain processes these calls. So what's going on here? 
Well, so Justin, we've gone from having a virtual lizard dating simulator yep. to basically having an android or robotic dating simulator for frogs. So you have robotic frogs that are projecting a recorded mating call, yep. and at the same time, they are inflating their vocal cords or sacs. So it looks like they're, for all intents and purposes, they're making an artificial mating call. Right. So the type of frog, the Tungara frog... Um, it generally attracts its mates by making a wine chuck kind of noise, which will probably be all familiar with the type of frog noise, but it also inflates its big like neck sack, right? So wine chuck on its own, like, the noise on its own is attractive to a female frog, but a noise and the inflating vocal sack is very attractive. So they're really trying to get to the bottom of, uh, you know, how this actually works. Is it important that the, they, they line up or is it important what's actually happening? So what did the researchers do, Lachlan? Well, so they played with the delay between the wine occurring and the vocal sac expanding. And first of all, what's really interesting is that the female frogs couldn't tell that this was an artificial frog. Like, to them, this was a legit mating call straight up. So that's the first interesting piece of information. But what they found is, even if the wine was very delayed in respect to the inflation, um, the lady frog registered no... She didn't realize anything was wrong at all. And in fact, she felt that it was more attractive than just the, the wine on its own. She actually recognized it as being a very attractive mating call, just like a real frog. Even though that makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective, because you can actually sort of hack this little poor frog's brain and give it a signal that would be impossible in real life, because you can't make a noise without inflating your vocal cords. That'd be like me speaking without actually vibrating my vocal cords. Um, but if you show a frog that this is, appears to be what's happening, they actually find it more attractive. Just like a regular uh, occurrence of it. So what I, what I find most interesting about this is it's actually really similar to the way the human brain processes different types of signals. As Lachlan mentioned, it's just a way of auto-filtering where the brain takes the two stimuli and goes, yeah, 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 these have to match up because if they don't, then every, something's wrong. So our brains do a lot of signal processing exactly the same as being done in a frog. And this is very similar to the way that we process humans process noise. Is this like if you're at a loud party and you're trying to concentrate on what someone's saying from across the room? Yeah, and you can often actually pick out your name amongst all the loud noise, and they call this the cocktail party effect. Uh, another part of this is if you expose a human to beeps, so frequent beeps, but with white noise played between them, so that's static played between them. The human brain will actually, after a while, perceive that as a constant tone, even though they're, they're just beeps on and off. Mostly because it will filter out the night noise and blend them together. Well, our, our cognition and the fact that we can data process so effectively by making economical cuts to what we're actually focusing on, that's helped us survive. That's helped us get where we are today because we can concentrate on different things. That's one of our major developments, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's also probably the same reason why frogs have developed a similar trait. They're using it as an advantageous mechanism to find the most attractive mate and therefore find the best partner. So being able to distinguish which, which traits are the best to identify it in a noisy circumstance is very important for frogs, just as it is for humans. Another kind of cool type processing thing like this is we as humans, when we hear our first language, it sounds a lot louder than um, a foreign language. So like when we watch SVS, like a foreign film on there, we have to turn the volume up much louder than we would if it was, say, our first language. Like, so for me, it would be English. But if I was watching one of the um, Chinese films that are on like a Friday night, I have to turn up the volume lots. And so, 
And it's, it's really interesting because what, what's actually happening there is when you're listening to English, your first language, you can actually process the words much easier. You know what they sound like. You can make the guesses and the approximations. You don't need it up loud to really hear what's going on. But with a foreign language, a uh, language you're not experienced with, you don't know, you don't have that experience and that background so that it's harder for your brain to process it. So you actually need it louder to make sense of it. You can't cheat much like you cheat by reading only three quarters of the letters on a, on a word or in a sentence to make sense of it. And this is one of the many processing hacks that our brains have determined to make us more efficient and faster. So keeping on with the froggy theme, we're going to actually talk at some great work that's been done of some weird frogs that live on the Seychelles Islands. So Camille, what's happening with these frogs? Um, and how did we shed some light on the circumstance? Oh, I'm so boggled by this. But so most things have some kind of ear thing on the outside of their body so that you know, they sound can, can get in and so they, they can, can process it. Yeah. Like we we're talking about before with processing signals. You still need somewhere for those signals to go. Yep. Yeah. So these gardener frogs from the Seychelles Islands, one of the most smallest frogs in the world, do not possess a middle ear with an eardrum, yet can croak themselves and hear other frogs. Yeah, so like, scientists were sitting there going, frogs, you can make noise. You can clearly make noise and understand you're making noise. And you can hear other frogs making noise but you possess no noise-listening apparati. Like, how? How are you doing this, frogs? What What do you mean? So these garden frogs are actually using their mouth cavity and tissue to transmit sound into their inner ears. They Not outside, inner ears. So, so they're basically using their mouth and their entire head cavity as a middle ear. Yeah, it's and... just one ear to transmit the sounds to ears that are actually inside them. Yeah, so it's not just, it's not like they're looking for the hole that's actually going to take in the sound. It's actually the, the, the ear and the eardrum is actually inside their mouth. So what we have that is accessible from our ears inside our, our heads, they're actually having it inside their mouths. And to find out, they actually had to x-ray these frogs because they're just sitting here going, how are these frogs hearing? They didn't understand. So they actually, some, some universities in Paris and in France at the University of, of Evry uh, actually went in to study these by taking some frogs and putting them in the European synchrotron uh, in Grenoble to actually figure out what the hell was going on. And the story of how these frogs developed such an unusual hearing practice is even more remarkable than the actual process that they had. So how did these frogs end up like this, Camille? So the usual way of hearing sound um, is common to many animals and it appeared mainly during the Triassic age, which was about 200 to, uh, 200 to 250 million years ago. And although this system has gone un undergone many changes, they have, um, they have in common the middle ear with eardrum and ossicles, which emerged independently in the major lineages. So basically all the different animals about 200, 250 million years ago came up. You know what's good for processing sound? An eardrum. And some sound, and that's how they like developed it yeah. independently. They all came up with the smart, the iPhone, the Galaxy S3, the, the the Nokia Lumia. They all came up independently, the same tech, um, but just through the same way. A thing in my head vibrates, which goes to my brain. Yeah, yeah, because without a like a middle ear, you the brain can't actually detect sound because ninety nine percent of a sound wave reaching an animal is actually reflected at the surface of its skin. So 
these frogs having the using their mouth is so strange because they these garden frogs have been living isolated in the rainforest on the Seychelles island for 47 to 65 million years so, so this isn't a new evolutionary adaptation but actually really sort of ridiculously ancient. old like if it was a new adaptation they would probably have ears on yeah. the outside. So what's actually really interesting about them, because it's such an isolated island chain, much like the Galapagos, they've just kept these really old technologies. So they're still using their uh, uh, Nokia 6210 with snake on it when everyone else, the rest of the world is rocking out with smartphones. They're still sitting there using their old phone because that's what they had and that's what they've grown and developed. And they would have some disadvantages by that. If you don't have any sort of ears on the outside, you wouldn't be able to perceive directionality as well. You wouldn't be able to hear for predators as well. It would be a very different way of sensory perception. But that's right. And there's certainly a lot of limitations on directionality as also as the frequency of actually listening. You have to almost actively listen with your mouth open then when humans can actually almost passively listen and the sound come in. Yeah, like their auditory system has to be a survivor of the life forms during like the supercontinent of Gondwana. Like, so seriously, seriously it's, ancient. It's really old. Like, but you know what, Justin? These would be really polite frogs. You know why? Why is that? Because they'd always have to listen before they speak. <laughs> that is that is very true. That is very true. So this is some interesting work that's been discovered. Some remnants of the past and these frogs' hearings and ears, and just goes to show what can happen if you leave nature on its own after many years. You can st- unpiece piece together the puzzle from years ago and get an insight into our autological past. So leaping off the Seychelles Islands onto the cold of Glasgow, where the researchers at the University of Glasgow have been shedding some light on a very sticky problem. So what's going on here, Lachlan? Well, Justin, when I think of cleanliness, I think of mucus. Why? I I, I tend not to. I I too think of mucus, but I think of being cleaned by removing the mucus and removing tissues. Okay, stay stay with me. You're losing me here. Previously on our podcast, we've talked about how, um, especially stuff, uh, amphibians with a high surface area on their skin um, can easily stick to things um, due to the van der Waals forces. So there are very, very small molecular forces that allow them to stick to things because of the high surface area. And it's the specific design of the type of surface. It's very rough and and it allows for adhesion quite well. Yes. And this also occurs in animals like tree frogs. Well, what they found is not only are tree frogs' toes really good at sticking, but also the mucus that their toes secrete. Now, so that, that's a bit weird. So it's not just the van der Waals force and the, and the design and the, the skin and the, all of that that's actually helping them stick. You're also secreting a mucus covering to those toes as well. Yes, that's right. They also have similar surface area properties. But how's this mucus clean? I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, I mean, cause, cause it, I mean, if it's sticky... If it's sticky, it's right? So I, 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 can get, I get the idea of secreting mucus. It's like secreting a gel that helps you stick to it. So if I was trying to climb a wall, I'd cover my hands in super glue and, you know, lift myself up by that. The problem is, though, and if you've had glue or even a bandage or some sticky tape, if the sticky tape falls on the ground or it's leaving in the air for a while, it'll collect dust and it loses its stickiness because it's no longer clean. So how do these frogs get around this problem? Well... There's sort of two ways that the frogs get around this problem. And the first is that they are super, super sticky. Like, the things they can do on a nanomolecular, uh, on a nanoscale, um, they just have such a high surface area. It's like thousands and thousands of times more sticky than traditional sticky tape. The other thing is these little guys have evolved to be able to walk. If they stuck to something and then couldn't unstick, 
they would very quickly be picked off by predators and stuff. That wouldn't be a good advantage. So having super sticky feet and then also being able to walk with them means that these guys can pick up dirt and stuff as they as they walk along the ground. So so how do they actually getting rid of this dirt on their feet and maintaining their high level of stickiness? So how the experimentalists sort of figured out this whole process and how they figured out that the frogs use this mucus to walk is they had a platform that got steadily steeper and steeper and they measured the angle at which frogs could sort of stick on without slipping off. They then repeated an experiment, but they covered the frogs' feet in dirt and they found that the frogs were slipping off a lot easier because, of course, there is less contact between the feet and the platform. But if they let the frogs take a couple of steps after having dirty feet, um, what actually happened is that their original stickiness came back because they were producing mu mucus on their feet again. And the mucus layer sort of like cleans the foot off, leaves the mucus behind, and they, they're able to re-enable their stickiness. Yes, and this could be really interesting um, in sort of the field of medicine and sort of biotechnology and stuff like that. If we could make a synthetic polymer or mass-produce this sort of mucusy stuff, we would have a really, really good glue or a really, really good cleaning product. Um, we could sort of glue um, wounds together and stuff like that, and it'd be really, really good in sort of war situations and stuff like that. So, I mean, this has got the medical world a lot of attention on that because trying to learn from nature is a fantastic way of actually finding designs that are both chemically and organically efficient that can also help us out an awful lot. And if we could produce something like this, it'd be, it'd be very, very efficient. It'd also be very sterile because it can clean the surface of things. Um, and you can produce it on a large scale if you can get a biological pathway. So it's a really, really good option. So this is some great research being done out of the University in Glasgow and on the interesting properties of the mucus in frogs being sterile and clean. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Yeah, the wonderful world of frogs and finding out all the weird and wonderful places where you can find a frog, the ways you can trick a frog's brain using interesting signal processing and the ways that frogs can help us learn more about our lives and our... Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.